The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Unless you guys want to talk about John Frame. Just for the heck of it for a little bit. No one wants to talk about John Frame. One day, you guys are going to just come up to me and say, let's just, let's just chat about John Frame for a while. He's kind of snarky, I he is. A little snarkiness in, that, in the writing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, again, uh, thank you for the fact that you've revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you've um, given us your spirit to, to discern and understand uh, the realities that you have communicated about yourself. And as we seek to understand some paradoxical realities, some things that, uh, that are held in tension, uh, that we, we can't necessarily wrap our minds around, our limited minds around entirely, um, May we, may we trust you. May, may we see uh, that, that your revelation of yourself is good, that your character is good, uh, that the ways in which you work throughout history, uh, the fact that you, you are sovereign, that you do rule, uh, that it's for our good, uh, rightly defined. So help us to, to know what it means to image you faithfully, um, recognizing uh, what, what your nature is, what your character is. So give us insight tonight. Um, and also as we look at the Trinity, uh, help us to understand uh, that paradoxical reality. Uh, three and one and one and three. Um, yeah, let us take you at your word and come to delight in, to love the things that you've told us about yourself. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so yesterday, if you guys were here, um, Andrew Clausen preached. And he talked about how there are a number of things that, that are held in tension in the Christian faith. So as we read scripture, as we read through the Bible, we realize, okay, here's truth X. And then we read elsewhere, here's truth why. Sometimes they're side by side. And our minds don't immediately understand the relationship between the two. They, they can seem like they're at odds with each other. It can seem like, like Scripture's actually speaking out of both sides of its mouth, as it were. Um, and, that, and actually, this is a, an accusation that's brought, been brought against the Bible and against God uh, and Christians for um, hundreds of years. That the Bible actually contradicts itself. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't speak a holistic truth but it actually says one thing and then says something completely different elsewhere uh, that, that undermines what was said before. So we're going to look at, at two different, quite large, but very important and meaningful, uh, paradoxical things that, uh, that we see in Scripture consistently. First, I want to look at the difference between a contradiction and a paradox. So a contradiction is technically defined. What? So we want to read it? All right, so what does that mean? Something cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same relationship. So, we'll go ahead. This cup can't be a cup and not be a cup at the same time. In the same relationship, perfect. But, let's say after you drink that coffee, you ripped that paper cup to shreds such that it can no longer hold liquid. Would you still be able to say that's a cup? I wouldn't call that a cup. wouldn't call that a cup. So now you're looking at two different times. And so it could be a cup and not a cup, but it's in two different times in, in history. Very close in history, but still, still two different times in history. Um, so another example would be, uh, my wife and I have been married for five years, just over five years, celebrated five years in September. Uh, prior to that, I was not a husband. After that, I was a husband. So, so me, Neil Long, 
I am a husband and I'm not a husband, but I can't be a husband and not a husband at the same time in the same relationship. So there's a difference in time there. Um, then you could say, okay, so my father, um, my dad is a father, but he's not a father to my mom or his sister or his mom. Um, so it's a different type of relationship. So he is a father and he's also not a father, but it's looking at two different relationships, two different realities. Um, so, what do you mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he talks about humans, that we have had earthly fathers which did correct us with the key for our prophet. Right. So and he does it perfectly. Context, though, I think what Jesus gets to is that ultimately only he has one father, God, that's it. Right. So we have, we have both uh, Heavenly Father and also um, earthly fathers that are meant to, to image him, although imperfectly uh, image who, the, who God is, God the Father. But the point I'm making is looking at that relationship, and it can be, it doesn't have to be people in relationship, it can be any, any realities that are, that are held together. Um, so contradiction is something cannot be fill in the blank and not be fill in the blank at the same time and in the same relationship, whatever that relationship is you're describing. A paradox, on the other hand, is simply a, an apparent contradiction. So it seems like that's the case. Initially, we're like, ah, I can't really wrap my mind around. I can't pull those two things together to make sense of. I, I can't necessarily articulate in a cohesive, cogent way um, how these two things come together. But there, pro- there is some way that these actually do come together. So we're going to look at two of those. One being the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So his absolute sovereignty over all of creation, all of history, all the details of our lives, and the fact that we are held accountable, we're actually responsible for, and we make real, free, genuine decisions uh, before God and before everybody else. So that's the, that's the first one. The second one we'll look at in the second half is the Trinity. How, how can God be one in essence and three in person? So two things that, that are not contradictory but are paradoxical. It's hard for us to get our minds around. We can't fully get our minds around these things. So I want to I wanna look up several texts. I would love for you guys to, to get those. So I'm just going to throw out a few texts of Scripture, and then if different people can grab those, and then we'll, we'll read them out, out loud and then discuss them. So can, can someone grab 2 Samuel 24.1? You got it? And then 2 Samuel 24.10-17. Actually, can you do both those? So 1 and then 10-17. through 17. And they're both on the sheet, just the... The two ends of that little graph. Uh, next, can someone get First Kings eight fifty eight? Yeah, Mike, you got it. And then First Kings eight sixty one. Yeah. And the next, can someone get Proverbs sixteen four? Okay. And then sixteen five. And then let's look at let's look at Acts thirteen forty eight. In Acts 14.68. Get those? Awesome. 
All right, so 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1. Perfect. And then, can you jump over to 10 through 17? But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jack, David's spirit, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. For God came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foe is ready to pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord set a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Great, you can stop there. Perfect. All right, so we're looking at a number of texts that um, either in the same narrative or very close to the same narrative or what's being communicated speak of two paradoxical realities. So divine responsibility on the, on the top. Nope, I just did that completely wrong. So that did not sound right. Divine sovereignty... would really mess with our theology. And human responsibility. So in this text, this is a story of uh, when David decides to number um, all of the troops. And this was commanded by God not to do uh, because it was a demonstration of not trusting that God would actually show up in the midst of war and defeat their enemies for them. Instead, it's like, all right, let's, let's rally the troops. This is not a universal principle that we can never number the people that are, that are um, under our charge or under our care. But in these conditions, um, in the nation of Israel, it was, don't number them. Trust God instead. I will give you what you need, and you will conquer the people that you need to conquer. So David decides to do that. In verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So here we have God actually inciting, in a sense causing, David to go do the thing that is not right for him to do. And then you jump over to verse 10, after he has done this, he's numbered um, all of Israel and Judah. And David's convicted because he's done this thing. And God actually said, okay, I'm going to give you three options. I'm going to give you multiple choice. How do you want to be punished for the sin that you've done? Because you're guilty for it. And he chooses one of the most selfish options where other people are going to suffer instead of himself. So what you have on the divine sovereignty side, you have God actually inciting this reality. You actually have, in verse 1 of chapter 24, God incited David to go number the people of Israel and Judah. And then, on the human responsibility side, David is actually accountable for these actions. He made a real decision to go and number uh, the people. Yeah, what's up? That's one part if you look at the Chronicles. Uh, it talks about the Satan rose up against Israel. Right. He tempted Satan. Right. He tempted David. But 
And it's going to be very difficult for people to deal with this, but we see a great illustration of the way things work out in this type of setting and background. When you look at Job, how Satan came in amongst the sons of God, or the angels, and Satan also came along with them. And, and, he, and then God asked them, from when do you come from? From when do you come from? And he says, from roaming to from the earth, walking over it. And then, and, then he, and then God says, have you considered my servant Job? Right. Totally. So, so what's your point now, which is really helpful? Right. What you see is that God initiated the whole conversation and then brought Job. He addressed Job. He was a godly man, and then Satan responds, "Well, does God fear God Job for nothing?" And then God says, "You know what? Here goes. Take him. You can take all these things, but don't touch his life." Right. And then he goes out and he strips. Uh, right. We got a lot of material to get through, so I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off right there. Um, but what you do point out, which is helpful, is in Chronicles we have a lot of the same stories that you see in First and Second Kings, and it gives a different perspective on it. It's giving a different angle um, on the reality. And so, yeah, what you're pointing out is one of the means that God uses is actually Satan um, to accomplish his purposes, which is is a, is a crazy thing to that boggles our minds. We're going to get into that a little bit more. So, all right, so let's, let's go to the next one. First Kings 8. All right, so here's another, another aspect where this comes out. Um, the people of God pleading with God, hey, incline our hearts to love your word. Incline our hearts to, to know you, to fear you, to delight in you. This is something that you must do in our lives. And then a few verses later, it's God saying, hey, go be holy. Go trust me. Go fear me. Go walk with me. So you, you have both things held in tension right there. God must do it, and we must do it. All right, let's go to the next one, uh, which was Proverbs 16. Uh, yes. Uh, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for, uh, for the day of evil. Four. And that everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not, uh, he will not be unpunished. All right. Do you guys feel the tension in that? Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Like everything that's been created has a purpose, and God has created it for that purpose. Even the wicked... Even the evil, the evildoer, for the day of trouble, when, when judgment comes. And then the, the verse immediately after that, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And so held responsible. Like we're held accountable for our arrogance, for our sin, for our evil doing. Um, and yet God creates realities, creates people, creates situations um, that lead to this very end. All right, last one, let's look at. Acts 13.48, and then Acts 14.68. Great. And then 14.68. No, that's not correct. There is no six... 
<laughs> I'm just making up texts of Scripture. It's like the Jeffersonian Bible, except I add things to it. Do you guys know that? Thomas Jefferson cut out the parts of the Bible he didn't like. Like, took a pair of scissors and... Uh, basically, any... What's that? Yes. Apparently, I just added several verses to the Bible. Unintentionally. <laughs> um, what is the text I'm looking for? So you just read 13.48. Oh, um, go back to Acts chapter 2. Yeah, I don't know. 238. All right, 238. It's right after Peter preaches the, the sermon at Pentecost. They're filled with the Spirit and preach to um, all the Jews that are from all the different nations and they hear in all, the, all their different tongues and languages. All right, 238. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Great. So in 1348, we have God appointing people for salvation. Like him actually choosing certain people to believe, to believe and trust in him. And then in 2.38, we have the call to repent and be baptized, to believe, to trust, to give your life over to Christ. And so you have these two parallel realities that run throughout Scripture. And there, there's more text listed on there. And you'll see this reality run in tandem all throughout Scripture. Now the danger is, and this is true with any tension in Scripture, that we want to take one or the other and make this the overarching paradigm. This is where we run into trouble. So if we want to just say, well, it's got to be a little bit more. Um, we basically need to see human responsibility through divine sovereignty. Um, so let's just, let's just make this where we land. Uh, you, you end up with what's called fatalism or determinism. That people's actions don't matter. Uh, we don't have true volition. We're not making real decisions. We're just robotically moving through life on the kind of a conveyor belt that God has already pre-designed, pre-organized, and we just, we don't have any choice. Like things just happen. Um, in fact, a lot, of, a lot of majority world contexts have this as their backdrop, a very fatalistic perspective. Um, that's why, especially a lot of countries in Latin America, like in the, in the Caribbean, um, entrepreneurs have tried to go in and, and give them the opportunity for, for jobs, for businesses, to, to grow, to develop. And many people there, even today, cannot conceive of the life outside of what they've been experiencing. Because it's like, there's no opportunity for growth. There's no opportunity for change. Now, thankfully, that's, that's shifted a lot over uh, the past couple decades. Um, but that is it's true of a lot of, um, of pagan religions. It's just like, well, the gods control everything. And it just, it is what it is what it is. I don't, I don't have volition in the matter. I don't have choice in the matter. I don't actually have true responsibility over the things around me. Um, so that's where we end up with fatalism or determinism, and it, it robs us of any true responsibility or accountability. Um, on the flip side, we can say, well, human responsibility, that, that must be the trumping reality. And so we must define human free will in a way that somehow limits God's sovereignty um, because that's, that's too overpowering. Like, we're not reading these texts correctly. God doesn't actually appoint people for, for salvation. Um, he just happens to be aware of the fact that they will make this choice unaffected by anything else. And so therefore, we can say that he appointed them for salvation. Um, this view is called libertarianism. 
Um, we'll jump into that in a little bit, but it's, it's basically the, it's defining free will and defining our volition apart from Scripture. Uh, why don't we just jump down there now since we're, since we're in that. So yeah, in the next section, we're libertarian, libertarianism fails. This is one of the sections where, where Frame is hilarious um, because he, he does this great job of articulating other people's perspectives beautifully and then at the end just saying, well, these people are kind of idiots. So let me explain to you what, what's actually true. Here's where, why they fail. Um, so what, one, of his, one of his quotes is, libertarianism is a technical philosophical notion making assumption, assumptions about causality, relation of will to action, relation of will to desire, and a limitation of God's sovereignty. So summed up um, for the sake of time as best I can, if you guys want to camp out here a little bit more, we can. Uh, libertarianism is understanding the human free will in, in the sense that it is unaffected by any other outside reality. So, so we're able to, to make a, 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 their definition of a free decision is that there is no constraint. Like there are at least two options um, on the table before um, that person's will that they can choose between. So you don't, what do you believe in? What is, uh, what do you believe in regards to salvation? Do you believe it's actually appointed by God? Or do you believe the individual has sin? Do you believe some people, or another question around, I should say, do you believe people uh, are ordained from eternity to hell and other people are ordained to salvation and the individual doesn't have a choice from it based off the ordination that God has done, that person either receives or rejects Christ based off of God already has four What do you believe? So, great segue, Hector. That's perfect. So, bring these together, and you have what's called compatibilism. Um, and this is where, if we're going to trust Scripture, we're going to land with certain tensions that we can't fully get our minds around. Now, we, we want a... We want, okay, we want 30% divine sovereignty, 70% human responsibility. Or maybe it's uh, 25% human responsibility and 75% divine sovereignty. We want some sort of re- ratio, some sort of relationship. Um, how are the two connected? Like God, God is, is doing up to this point, but then you know, humans are doing the rest of it to get there uh, in relationship to salvation or whatever other reality throughout history. Compatibilism says 100%, 100%. You're just viewing the same reality from two different perspectives. Now, if we were God and we could see... Reality. We could see truth. We could see creation. Uh, we could see time and space, not as, a, as limited humans who are dependent upon God to understand anything, but we could actually see it from his perspective, then we would understand the relationship between the two, and we, we would see more fully how, how these two connect. But we're not. We're coming at it from, from this perspective. And so, yes, there are people who are appointed to salvation. Um, we, we can hop over to Romans 9 for a little while and look at at those who are elect and not elect. This is a, it's a, in some ways, hard truth to settle with. There are people who are chosen for salvation, and there are those who are not chosen for salvation. You say elected and elected, which is the same thing as chosen, not chosen. Do you believe that election to salvation, others not elected to salvation, those chosen to salvation, those not chosen, do you believe this choice is made by God, where God says, you, Joe Blow, you get to go to heaven? before he be found in the world. Because you know what it says in Revelation that whose names are not written 
and the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So each and every one of us right here that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our names have already been written in the last book of life, slain before the foundation of the world. Our names were already written there before God even founded the world. Right. So there are different interpretations so, on that. Huh? Different interpretations okay, on so that. So I don't want to go off on that. So as far as totally. the question, really quick is, do you believe God said, you know, John Doe, you get to go to heaven, and Joe Blow, you're going to hell. And you guys never had a choice in it. You so that's your interpretation, because Right. Well, let me answer your question. Don't, don't move on to the next question until you okay. let me answer. So you're saying, has God appointed some to salvation and some to damnation? Without uh, their choice. Without being so that, that, is saying, that is saying 100% divine sovereignty. Yeah, you had no choice. Yes, God has chosen and appointed some to salvation. Mm-hmm. And our choices matter. And the way that Frame would say it is, to, to articulate the way you did, God has appointed some to salvation, and we have no choice in the matter, is to think unhistorically. Is, is to think not within the confines of what God has actually created. He's, he's created human history. Um, he's created us with volitions. He's created us to, to think and to love and to do and to act and to respond, to believe. And so, yes, 100%, God has, has chosen people for salvation. And, and yes, we live limited. We, we live as created contingent beings. We live... Um, within time and within space. And 100%, our choices matter. 100%, we have to trust in, in God for salvation. And there is no kind of, well, because that's fallen into the, to the determinism category where we say divine sovereignty, yes, but let's not take seriously the fact that the humans are held accountable for their lives. We must repent and believe the gospel. And anyone at today, tomorrow, next week, a year from now, who repents and believes the gospel and trusts in God for salvation will be saved. That is communicated throughout Scripture. And when they do that, that demonstrates the fact that they've been chosen from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Both, yeah, both, yeah, both so, are true. Yeah, so, yes, both are true, but the way I view it is not in that God says, Joe Bill gets to go to hell, John Bill gets to go to heaven. The way I view it, the election, the doctrine of election, the way I believe it is that when, he's, when Paul says, when he's chosen before the foundation of the world, so this whole being elected to heaven, being elected to hell, the way God makes that choice of who he elects is based on his foreknowledge. So that when he looked down the timeline before everybody was born, he knew who would respond to the glorious gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sacrificed for the sins of humanity so you can be reconciled to God and be saved. All right, let's, so let's go that route. So did, let's look so at Romans 8. Did, so he knew you would do that. He knew I would do that. He knew everyone else would do that. He knew people who are not in this church right now are in the world who are atheists, who don't believe, he knew that they would make that decision. He would say, you know what, even though I do believe that, I'm still going to reject it, or no, I don't believe that, and, and they don't want to repent, or whatever their reasons are, they don't want to repent because of the pride or sin. And he knew who would make those choices, and based on those choices that God already you would make, he made his choices right. to ordain. So what you're describing, what you're describing is the libertarian position. position. Um, it, it's not, so we're teaching out of John Frame, and he comes out of the compatibilist tradition. Um, he, it's Reformed theology. So what, what you're describing is a belief in libertarian free will. So the, what you're talking about with the foreknowledge, that typically people argue from Romans 8. So if you go to, start in verse 28. So that it is, it is his choice. Who he likes All right, let's, let's, let's look at Romans 8, 28. So, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he, pre- he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, so that the argument from this text, from the libertarian perspective, is there, this is a kind of a chronological series of events. So, verse 29, for those whom God foreknew, so he kind of looked down the tunnel of human history, and he looked out ahead to, all right, how will these human beings choose in relationship to me? Even if they, they never have the gospel presented to them, um, how would they choose? Because he, if his knowledge is comprehensive, it's thorough, he knows how every human soul, how every human will would, would choose in relationship to God, if, if presented with or when presented with the gospel. And so the argument goes, he foreknows that decision, and based upon that foreknowledge, he then predestines, <clears throat> or foreordains, <clears throat> excuse me, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, predestined, called, justified, glorified. So, and there, there are Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, like, brothers and sisters in Christ who hold this position. I think it's false. I don't think it's what Scripture teaches. Um, and, and we're also teaching through frame. And so I, I know we disagree on this. We've talked about it before. Um, but it, just so you know, like, there are Christians, there are people who love Jesus who disagree with John Frame, who write systematic theologies, who pastor churches, and would define salvation just that way. Um, the Reformed tradition... You're right. You're right. So the Reformed argument for this is, if you, if you do a study on the word foreknew, and you look at the other places that it's used, this, this idea of knowledge, it is, it is an intimate knowledge. It is a relational knowledge. It is a, a knowing someone, not just in a, I know one aspect of how you might choose about something, but I know you in a, in a true way, as a father would know a son, or a husband would know his wife, or vice versa. There's an intimacy in this knowledge. Second, second argument is, um, in 29 and 30, what Paul's describing is um, kind of this, they call it a golden chain, or it's basically the basket of realities that come with salvation. So it's not in this chronological fashion. Um, yeah, it's, it's not like, okay, this, then this, then this, then this, but looking at it from just different perspectives. Um, that's how Frame would put it. It's, he's all about the perspectival. So multi-perspectival. So you're looking at this reality of salvation. God knows his people. God calls his people. He, he predestines his people. He justifies his people. He glorifies his people. Um, and part of that comes from the end of verse 30 uh, when it says, in those whom he justified, he also glorified. So speaking in the past tense, even though glorified is actually, um, in the, the categorical sense, a future reality. It's, it's when we see Jesus face to face, we're utterly perfected and we are glorified. That's glorification in the, the technical theological sense. Uh, that's what we have to look forward to. But yet here Paul's talking about in the past tense. So he's kind of looking back at this, this basket of realities, basket of perspectives on our salvation. Uh, the, the God knows us intimately. He knows us personally from the foundation of the world. Um, Paul in Ephesians 1 goes into this further, that, that he knows us at that level. So that, that's, the, that's the divine sovereignty side. And lest we fall into this kind of fatalistic, deterministic understanding of the world, God calls us to repent and believe the gospel. We must repent and believe the gospel. Any who repent and believe the gospel and trust in Jesus for salvation are saved. All that does is demonstrate the fact that God has appointed them from the foundation of the world to salvation. 
And so this is the, this is the track um, that the entire scripture runs along. Uh, you can see it come out in, in uh, the same narratives like we saw tonight already. Um, and you can see these themes come out over and over and over again. We cannot wrap our minds around this because we don't have the divine perspective. Like we don't see reality as a, an eternal, infinite, perfected being. We're, we're contingent, we're limited, we're, we're, um, we're constrained by time and space. We're not able to see it fully. So real quick, last distinction I'll make between compatibilism and libertarianism. Um, so libertarianism says for a choice to be free, you must have at least two legitimate options before you to, to choose between. And, and uh, they define it differently, but it basically comes down to there can't be some sort of constraint or outside causality on the decision. It must be like this, this will that exists inside an individual that is not constrained or caused by anything. Um, compatibilism says, well, no, 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 the definition of freedom is you're able to do what you want to do. And what you want to do is constrained by a lot of things. Like my desires are constrained by the family I grew up in, the city that I live in, the people I spend time with. Um, so the, 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 me saying the words that I am right now, that the fact that I, I am here on staff at Park Church, the fact that um, we're teaching this class, I mean, all those things, you, you can trace all the different factors that led to people making decisions in those moments constrained by a lot of different realities, doing what they want to do based upon those constraints. So, so that's, the, that's the understanding of free will or freedom in, uh, according to the compatibilist perspective. So that's that. There, we, can, we can spend a long time on this, um, and there are plenty of, of lectures and books if you guys want to process this further. Um, I, I know it's, it's hard. Okay, so... Let's, let's make this really practical with what's been going on in uh, Paris and Beirut over the past several days. So you have massacre. You have attacks. You have senseless murdering of people. And you say, well, what is it? You know, has God caused these realities? Has he brought these about? Is he somehow culpable for these things? Or have humans actually made free decisions um, to bring these about? And the biblical answer is, well, except for the God being culpable part, um, the answer is both. And that's where, um, it's on your sheet. Yeah, okay, so God's decretive, preceptive, um, wills, and then also wisdom. I don't want to spend too much time on this. Um, do you guys have any questions before we move on to another aspect of this? So, so then salvation is completely out of the hands of the individual. That's not what I said. have the human responsibility to respond, but, but it's God that was ordained uh, all mankind, well, well, he's the one that's ordained some people to salvation, others to then uh, eternal damnation. So that's, there you open up into other options, even within the compatibilist understanding. You have what's like called double predestination, like and you have single predestination. So double predestination says God um, appoints some to eternal life and some to eternal condemnation. Single predestination says he appoints some to eternal life and the rest well, they just, they got what they wanted. They, they, they chose to, to rebel against God, and they, they got it. So it's not like he actually chose them for that. It's just kind of the, the default position for everybody else. Um, the charge against that a lot of times is, well, how is, how is single predestination not functionally double predestination? Because if you have two categories, A or B, that's where you end up. So I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. It gets 
technical, philosophical. The reality is, Bible teaches consistently over and over, God controls all things. He speaks all things into existence, even the really hard, frustrating realities of life. And humans have real volition. We make free decisions every day that we're held accountable for. Um, different aspects of God's will. This is also helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So evil comes. He has purposes for that, and our response to it actually matters, like how we decide in the midst of it. Because if we take the fatalist perspective, we say, well, God brought this, therefore it must be good in and of itself, instead of he wants to work good through it. And then we end up calling what's evil actually good, and God never tells us to do that. We still call evil evil, even though God is completely in control. We call things that are hard and bad and, and just devastating realities. We, we identify them for what they are and recognize that our decisions actually matter in the process. How we respond actually matters in the process. Yeah, that's good, Jen. Um, so, again, this is where theology gives us words to categorize different realities we see in Scripture. We're never going to see decretive in Scripture. Um, but we do see what falls in the category of his decretive will all throughout scripture. And then you have preceptive. And wisdom. Um, So in typical Framian triangular fashion, you have decretive will, which is God decrees from eternity past certain things to take place. And they will take, they they will come to pass. They will take place. Uh, There, there is no, arguing with that. There is no changing that. Um, don't want to, don't have time to jump into to text right now. I just want to hit, hit on these categories. Whatever is God's good pleasure will come to pass throughout human history. Then he communicates aspects of his will. Uh, you can think of preceptive will as the, the precepts or the laws that he communicates. So he says, my will is that you obey me and it looks like this, this, and this. We know that that doesn't always come to pass because humans rebel. We rebel. We don't do what God has called us to do. We live in the nation of Israel. We look at our own hearts and we see that we hear God's commands. We hear what he calls us to and say, this is what life looks like. Obey me. Trust me. Walk with me. And I see my own heart and I run away from that. So preceptive will is what he communicates that that should be. This is reflecting his character. Um, But it it doesn't always come to pass because we're fallen, broken individuals. Um, but somehow the, the breaking of the preceptive will is absorbed into the decretive will, if that makes sense. So God, from eternity past, he, he's decreed all things to be. Like all, all that which um, brings him ultimate pleasure and delight will come to pass. And part of that is human beings breaking his laws and his precepts. He, he's going to actually wield that, wield human rebellion for the good of his people and for his glory ultimately. Wisdom is basically us trying to, to understand how does how do his preceptive wills or his preceptive will get worked out into everyday practice. So a lot of times when God communicates, hey, this is what's pleasing to me, it's it's not like a one-to-one, oh, this makes perfect sense. Um, like Michael and I, we've been processing, you know, go to seminary, do an online program, Denver Seminary, um, things like that. 
we've been processing that too. Should you go to Denver Seminary? Should you not? What does that look like? It's, it's trying to apply, okay, what has God communicated about himself? What has he said is right and good and true? And we're trying to contextualize it. We're trying to, to fit that to the situation, to exercise wisdom. That takes place in the context of community. Uh, it takes great humility, um, setting his word, trying to understand what those, those realities are. Um, all right. We spent a long time on that. I'm guessing we should probably take a break. They are. So it's really hard to wrap it around with your head on. I'm still struggling with that. Cause, I mean, but here's the thing. Cause you know how old that you know I'm 37 and you're not spending in Calvary Chapel over a decade studying uh, Chuck Smith's uh, theology. So I have the Chuck Smith's theology. It, 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 and that's very much foreknowledge as far as election. Yeah. It, it's God's choice, but he made his choice based on your choices. So it becomes your choices and his choice also. Yeah. So anybody that wants to come to faith in Christ, you can come. You won't be turned down. Yeah, so that so, so I have all this theology from there to, to be introduced to praying and, and all this uh, stuff here at the park, even though as good as great as the theology it is, it's, it's, it's definitely a change for me. Absolutely. It's just, it's just a struggle that I'm going through right now. And I, I grew up utterly confused. Like I heard I heard perspectives on all different ends of the spectrum. I was like, oh man, this marker's about to bleed on me. Broke it. Um and so, totally get that. Like, the, and these are, these are complex concepts that we ultimately can't fully understand. Uh, we have to take, oh, that's bad. Um, we do have to trust that what God has communicated of himself is true, and that we, we can actually live in this kind of world that he's created, even though we can't articulate it perfectly. That we can't make sense of every, every last aspect of it. Um, the issue with that most compatibilists, most people in the Reformed tradition have with what you're describing um, is this. So we say, okay, God foreknows man's decision. So he, he looks down the, the tunnel of human history and he knows man's decision. And this is, this is utterly unconstrained. It's libertarian. There's no cause, anything causing it outside of that individual just deciding that. What that does is, functionally, man's decision has just usurped the position of authority in determining what God's actions will be. Does that make sense? So, so God is making his decision of predestining, of saving, of, of giving salvation to people based upon, ultimately, our work of belief. So functionally, what it becomes is salvation by works. That's the argument. Um, Spurgeon would say, he goes, if the only difference between myself and that guy over there who is not a Christian is I actually chose of my own libertarian free will, own volition, to trust in God, whereas he didn't, then that's not very comforting. Because now it's up to me that, that I actually I did the right thing. I trusted in the right way. I, I had the right kind of faith in the right moment. I said the right prayer. I, I signed the right card. Well, that's not very comforting because I see my heart go so many different directions, even in the course of a day. Like if my, if my salvation is rooted in the fact that I made a decision that God somehow knew and was confident enough that that, that decision was real and solid enough that he would say, I'm going to save Neil based upon that decision that he made. Well, good job, Neil. You made the right decision. Therefore, you're saved. Well, man, that's shaky ground. That's not comforting at all. 
But if I know with Paul in Ephesians 1 that he foreordained me, he foreknew me from the foundation of the world unto salvation, then I can rest in the fact that he has saved me for his own glory, for his own namesake. Uh, not because I'm good enough, not because I've, I've performed enough, not because I've, I've done the right work of deciding in the right way. It's because God is gracious and kind. That he's actually sufficient for that salvation. So, so that's, that's where a lot of the tension comes in. And I guess that's where the, the philosophy meets the kind of the everyday spaces that we live in. Um, it's not just, hey, let's debate about God's foreordination of things. But it comes down to, what does it mean for us? What, what confidence do we have in being saved? If it's in my, my decision that God, you know, that's, that's what he, the foundation he stands upon for my salvation, I'm not comforted at all. Because I'm going to be reevaluating that singular decision that he foreknew, supposedly, again and again and again, and saying, did I, did I decide the right way? Did I have the right kind of faith? Well, man, I, I had some wrong motives in there. Like, I didn't have the, the right quality of faith there, or the right, the right kind of faith there. Um, so that, that's, that's where it becomes a little more um, practical for us. You just still sound from just listening to you. sounds very optimistic. Yes. Yeah, like, you know, God, that's God, exactly what it is. Yeah. See, I, I'm just not in agreement with that. I used to just cling to my own Bible scholar, Joe Smith, with everything. And God's used that movement powerfully over the last 30 years. They have solid, I mean, solid Bible teachers out of that. I mean, that's fine, dude. I, I respect it. It's great to find it for the first time in my life. I was very fearful of coming out of Calvary. Very scary. After I got saved at 19, I strictly followed Calvary Chapel Theology. And I even used to mock other movements. Because, I mean, Calvary, God has used Calvary Chapels, man. And, and everybody has left to the Chuck Smith. And, again, foreknowledge is based on is, Salvation is based on foreknowledge, not based on the destination. You go to heaven, you go to heaven. Uh, and I've already went through this. I might have gone through this again. But I was very guarded and very fearful. But I know that God did choose me before the foundation of the world. I've been a believer 18 years now. And even though I, I, there's been times they have not all been pretty years, we just talked this morning about my backslidings, go back to the same body rebellion and then the repentance, you know, and, and the commitment to God. But at this point, I have been ready to step out and study Calvin uh, theology. And, and I'm really excited to learn more about the Calvinistic and, and, and these views it's very much a pleasure yeah. and joyful and exciting. But it was always, it was not always, I was never always open. Absolutely. It was scary at one point. So here's the, here's the beauty of studying theology. Like, it matters. It matters that we, we think through our faith, we think through what the Bible has said and, and try to understand it well. We're not saved by our good theology. Like, we're not saved by understanding charts and graphs that, you know, Neil drew up on a board or John Frame puts together, the, tr- the many triangles that John Frame has. Like, we're not saved by that. We're saved by... Jesus, who is Lord, who became a man, or Christ, who became a man, laid down his life for us so that we might be reconciled to God. We're not saved by being able to articulate all these things. And it's really helpful for us to study them, to understand them, to be able to articulate them, uh, because they do have impact. I mean, when we go through seasons where we have been backsliding or we're running from God, we feel our heart just running headlong away from God. Where is our confidence? Where is our hope? When we experience acute suffering, when we experience loss, do we have a God who actually wields these things for our good? Or do we have a God who's just kind of playing chess and it's like, well, I didn't expect that move. Well, I can still work with it. Hopefully I can, I can somehow salvage this reality. Or do we have a God who is absolutely in control, 
who calls us to, to trust in him, to lean into him, to know that he is faithful and kind and good um, in the face of, of realities that are taking place across the world right now even. Um, so so <coughs> theology matters. We're not saved by good theology. Uh, that's, it's always important to, to recognize the, the two things there. Are you open to being wrong about this view and being right? I'm always open to being wrong. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We've been talking about heady things for a while. Let's take a break and let's keep talking. All right, so now we're, this is the segue into the Trinity. This is St. Patrick trying to explain the Trinity. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning. And we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. I'm not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid, ice, and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism. Ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 of the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like the, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creation of the Father, and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. <laughs> All right, sorry. Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, holy horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partial? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robots <laughs> and together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you have. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was probably all right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine. Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? <laughs> yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotous, get drunk, and vomit on the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. So there's our heresies for today. I thought about playing the game, name that heresy, but maybe at the end. What's that? <laughs> they do. All right. So let's talk about Trinity. Um, what do you guys What do you guys think when you hear Trinity? Good. So, here's another example. What's up? Yeah, just Neo. I like your diagram. Kind of looks like the peace sign. It's not what I was going for. This one is much better. It's on your sheet. All right. So this is another place where theology is helpful because we're we're not just restating um, directly what we have in Scripture. We're actually trying to to make sense of it and categorize it and give language for it um, so as to to understand it more fully and make it more applicable for us. So language of Trinity or the triune nature of God is found nowhere in Scripture directly. What we do have is God the Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son all existing throughout all of Scripture. And so what theologians have done throughout history is say, okay, this is what God has revealed to us of himself. How do we make sense of it as best we can? Now, again, this is a, it's a paradoxical reality. It's a seeming contradiction. Um, it's not an actual contradiction. Um, but it, it does seem, it's not something that we can, we can fully wrap our minds around. So the doctrine of the Trinity says that God is one in essence. So actually, let's flip over to Deuteronomy um, chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. It's called the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're not polytheistic. This is actually what the Muslims accuse Christians of, of being polytheistic. We have multiple gods. We have three, in fact, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, Christian faith is monotheistic, meaning one God. We worship a singular being who has revealed himself in the Bible. But there are three persons of this Godhead, of, of who God is. So one being or one essence, but three persons 
of the Godhead. So that, that's where the paradox comes in. So it seems like a contradiction, right? It's like, how can it be one and three? How can it be three and one? But let's go back to our definition of what a contradiction is. Something cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same relationship. Well, now time, it is at the same time. So let's, let's look at the category of relationship. With respect to being, with respect to essence, in that relationship, God is one. With respect to person, in that relationship, God is three. Now, how that connects together, you know, we're gonna, we'll, we'll dive into a little bit. Um, I really want to spend a lot more time on the implications of the Trinity and less trying to articulate this because, as you can see, there's so many different ways of becoming heretical with the Trinity. Um, so I really want to move to what does this actually mean for us? But the reality is we serve a singular God, one God, who is three in person. He is tri-personal. Now, the dangers here is, uh, one of the dangers is, one of the heresies that, that Patrick alluded to in his, in his analogy, uh, would be modalism. This is probably the most common heresy, the most common wrong teaching of the Trinity uh, that we see in the Christian church. That teaches that, um, well, let's just use the analogy that, that Patrick used. That someone can be a father, a husband, and a son. Well, he, he's just taking on different forms at different times. Right, and that's, that's why the little, two little Irishmen call him out on it. It's, like, it's, not, it's not that God is like, all right, here's God. All right, tag team, son, go in. Go get on the cross. Go die for the, you know, take on the penalty of, of humanity. Raise to new life and then come, up, come back up here. And then you'll tag team the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to go down to Pentecost. And he's gonna, you're going to fill the people. It's not as if there, there's one here and then you switch and the other one go access God. All three persons are completely and entirely God at all times. Are we all confused yet? So I'm, I'm not going to settle the confusion. Um, it, it is a mystery. But th- this is what we see throughout Scripture. So let's, let's look at a few texts that, um, that unpack the Trinity, or at least give us the, um, the pieces of the Trinity. So let's look at... Let's look at uh, Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. So these are the last uh, recorded words that Jesus has to his disciples. And starting in verse 16, 28 verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw, when they, saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's an example of Father, Son, and Spirit, all in the same sentence, like one after, after another. Recognizing that, you know, Jesus himself is in Jewish history. Like, he's in, in the Jewish religion. They're going to teach polytheism. He's, he's describing the three different persons of the Godhead. 
And so that's where, that's where the doctrine of the Trinity emerges, is texts like these that we see all three are identified as God. How do we make sense of this? Like, how does this actually come together? Where? I'd have to look at that. Um, you might be right. I'm not sure about that. Um, all right, so let's look at the quote by frame. That first box, about halfway down. So it says, The Father is the one who foreknows, the Son the one who sprinkles blood, and the Spirit the one who sanctifies. This is a useful generalization about the distinctive roles of the persons. The Father plans, the Son executes, and the Spirit applies. But of course, all these events require, typo, require the concurrence of all three persons. And so what Frame is saying here is there are different operative roles that the three persons of the Trinity take throughout human history. The Father is the one who plans all things. That The Son actually executes them. So you see this most clearly in salvation. God the Father has designed from eternity past um, salvation, a plan of salvation, that he would, he would lead through human history to get to the point where Jesus, his son, would come to the earth and live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, and then raise to new life, saving people. So that, that's the plan that the Father has, has developed. And then you have the Son who actually executes that. He comes to earth. He, he is the one who is incarnate, and he executes that plan of salvation. And then the Spirit comes, uh, you see this in John 16 and 17, where the, uh, Jesus says, hey, I'm about to leave you guys, but it's okay. The Spirit of God is coming. The Spirit will come and dwell within you. And he will he'll lead you into all truth. He will teach you all things. So the Spirit comes and applies the reality of our salvation to our hearts. Um, I think we talked about that, that the first week. The Spirit, it's not just some wishful thinking we talk about when we say, oh, the, the Spirit of God lives within me. It's like, the Spirit of God dwells within every single Christian. He actually takes up a home within our souls, and it has real effects in our lives. Um, so that's the Spirit applying that. So you see three different roles throughout history. Father plans, Son executes, um, Spirit applies, of the three persons of the Trinity. But there's, a, there's this, this thing that theologians have called, theologians love making up words, um, usually pulling from Latin, um, of... This is actually Greek, though. Uh, perichoresis. So perichoresis or circumincisio, which is not, doesn't have anything to do with circumcision, but it sounds like circumcision. Um, perichoresis, uh, perichoresis or circumincisio is the idea that each person of the Trinity dwells within the other person of the Trinity. Um, another way of saying that there's just deep intimacy in these relationships. There's full, full knowledge, full disclosure of the three persons in the Trinity. Um, so th- this is where we start moving into the implications for us. Um, uh, so one of the questions around God's character is, well, how could God, how could love be c- uh, central or essential to God's character if there's only a singular God and before there was anything created, there was nothing or no one to love? So if God, God never had an object of his love, how could he actually be Love That wouldn't be core to his character. It wouldn't be a necessary attribute of who he is. The Trinity helps us understand that there's actually mutual love within the persons of the singular Godhead. Like there's complete, absolute knowledge of, love for, care for, father to son, son to father, father to spirit, spirit to father, spirit to son, son to spirit. 
Um, they know one another. Um, they care for one another. There is, is uh, what's called mutual glorification of one another, elevating the work of the other. You see that come out a lot in John 16 and 17. Um, let's actually read that frame quote, the second box there. There is no conflict in the Trinity. The three persons are perfectly agreed on what they should do and how their plan should be executed. They support one another, assist one another, pr- promote one another's purposes. This intra-Trinitarian deference may be called mutual glorification. In the Gospel of John, the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son, who in turn glorifies the Father. So is there, there is this mutual service, glorification, care for, love for, knowledge of the three persons within the Trinity. And this is the God, this triune God, this God who is in community, this God who is unity amidst diversity that we image, that we put on display. And so you see this come out in the, the Genesis narrative, the creation narrative of, of, of humans. You know, let us make, there's debate as to whether or not the us is actually speaking of the Trinity. Andy Crouch was here a couple weeks ago, and he, he's convinced it is, and he's smarter than I am, so I'll we'll go with that. Yeah, there's this love in the Trinity, the whole Trinity, right? There's this, I mean, Jesus in John, is the greatest great disciple, and talks about, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Also, as you have given him authority to give, Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're talking about the high priestly prayer in John 17. We're going to look at that in just a few minutes, and that's where I want to end with is exactly where you're going. Yeah. There's this, this community, and they, and they talk to each other. Right. So I mean, it's it's not. The very fact that they're talking to each other, I mean, that's that's communion, that's fellowship, which 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 goes back to that point. Remember a couple weeks ago when it came that, that God created things because He was lonely. That's not true. Right. Had the Father and the Holy Spirit had perfect community, koinonia, right. fellowship. And so it's this God, this God who is in community, like as part of His essence, that we image, and so He He creates. Um, male and female, to be in community. Like he creates people. He creates the plural of person in order for the, for the sake of community and relationality. Uh, that's why he says the, in, in Genesis 2, backing up the narrative a little bit and kind of uh, honing in, it's not good for the man to be alone. That, that's speaking of the fact that it's not good for us to, to not be in community. We, as humans, we image God, the God who is in community. Like we're meant for this kind of care for, knowledge of, um, relationality with other persons. Uh, first with God, but then with other human persons as well. Um, so that, that's one of the implications for us is this, this communion, this community that exists within the Trinity. This is the God that we put on display. So that means central to our character, we can't get away from it, is that we need community. Like we need other people to be in our lives. We, we can't just isolate ourselves. Uh, we're not made for that. We're not wired that way. Not that there's not time for alone time, but... <laughs> As an introvert, I know there's time for that. Um, all right, let's, let's flip over to John 17 and spend a few minutes on this, and then we'll discuss around our tables and be done. So flip, flip over to John 17. So 
So I'm going to read this entire te- the entire chapter. Um, but as I do, don't just tune out. Like try to try to pick up on things. What are, what are observations you make? What are things you notice in the relationship between uh, son and father? And then what other people like how he's praying for? You'll see that he turns a corner and he prays for us essentially. So see what you notice from it. Starting verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before, with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to, to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have, have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to, that, you keep, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Then in verse 20, here's where he makes the turn. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right, so a lot of I's and them's and ends. Um, what do you guys notice from the text? Geez, that's a lot of information. <laughs> I see a lot of, I mean, it's clear, I mean, it's, it's fast. It's always like, I mean, Jesus, God, I mean, there's a ton in there about God. I mean, Jesus is talking about how much God loves him. Yeah. Kind of like, in a sense, like, when we talk about, like, oh, God loves me, but it's very much a different way he's phrasing it. Like, hmm. God has loved me from the, from the beginning. It's very much just like a father-son type thing you kind of see in there. Which is very kind of it's kind of it's very unique. Hmm. I feel like for Jesus, Jesus, like yes, I love the like I love my disciples, but the way he's talking about how the way God loves him, yeah, it's very unique. In hmm. some way. Yeah, it's in, in the fact that it's, the fact that he 
tells us that that is his desire for us to have that love yeah. that he loves him is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Because you just said at the end there, like that's the love I desire. For like the love, the way the little father loved me, that 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 love would come to us. They're the same thing. The love so, oh, the love comes from the father. So, have you guys ever heard the expression? Maybe someone who's a has got a hard shell, or it's hard to kind of get past the surface with them. You say, oh, they they won't let me in. Like that, we we get that concept of even though it's it's abstract, we're not actually saying I, I'm going inside anywhere, but. In a sense, like relationally, it's, it's getting kind of behind the, the hard shell that's there. Um, what Jesus is unpacking here is exactly what you're saying, that there, there is such a, a level of knowledge and intimacy and care between God the Father and God the Son. It's absolute intimacy. It's absolute knowledge. It's absolute care. It's a, absolute uh, mutual submission toward one another, mutual glorification toward one another. And then the beautiful turn is... So at verse 20, he's, he's praying for us. He's praying for people who would believe ultimately through the words of his disciples, which includes us. So verse 20, you're not asked for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And he goes in verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I am them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Um, where's the verse I'm looking for? Verse 21. So that they, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. <clears throat> so that this idea that, that there is this complete intimacy and knowledge of uh, between Father and Son. So... <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, so, Father, um, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. This is, if we got just a fraction of this, of what Jesus is inviting us into, what he's praying for us to be invited into, we would be blown away. So, within the Godhead, within the triune God, there's this level of, care, intimacy, knowledge of, love for, that exists eternally. And then as Christians, trusting in Jesus, being connected, being united to Jesus by faith, Jesus is praying that we would be ushered into this communion, this relationship, this community, this being known, um, this, this love of the Father uh, that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So th this triune love, this triune community, as Christians, we're, we're ushered into that, into to being fully known and fully loved. And not only that, this whole text is laced with um, also a horizontal communion. It's, we're, we're brought into a relationship with the, the Trinity, and then also, therefore, since we're all brought there, in a relationship with each other. There's, there's a kind of bedrock unity that exists there uh, that frees us up to, to actually get to know other people, uh, to be known by others and not be afraid of, of what, how they might respond. First, knowing that we're loved by this God. And second, 
that we're called to, to image this love to other people. Uh, so what do we see the brokenness of? We see the sin of. We see the, the weirdness of other people. We're, we're actually called to, to image that love and say, I love you. Like, I care for you. I'm, I'm here with you. I'm not, I'm not leaving. Uh, we're, we're still in this. And so that this, this prayer that Jesus prays is ushering us into a deep level of, of spiritual intimacy uh, that we have access to because of the work of Jesus. This is another one of those things that, so many things in in Scripture and theology, it's like they are spiritual realities that don't feel very real to us because we can't reach out and grab them immediately. Um, But yet that, that again, betrays our material bias. Like we think that things are material or are necessarily more real or more true. And that's, that's a Western mindset. It's a Western phenomenon. Um, it's not a biblical phenomenon. Uh, God is spirit, and he has created material things. Um, but spiritual realities that he communicates to us about, true things about, are nonetheless real. And they're profound and they're deep. Um, so the question for us to, to consider and move into around our tables, like, first, what if we actually believe that? Like, what if we actually thought that the God of the universe has ushered us into this complete, absolute being known and being loved with him and then with each other. And then second, there's a series of questions down at the bottom. It is the, it is the triune God whom we image as humans. What does this tell us about who we are as human persons and how can we faithfully image the triune nature of God in our relationships? So what if we actually believe that we're brought in this intimacy? And then second, how do we image that? Like what does that mean for us as humans and then how do we go about our relationships differently because, if, because that's true? So let's take a handful of minutes and discuss that, and then we'll wrap up. Man, that's just All right, a couple things real quick, um, and we'll get out of here. So one of the, the things you guys had with your handouts was this guy right here. It's got a lot of bubbles and notes and whatnot. Um, so this, a year ago when I taught this class, it was five weeks, and so I had more time. And when talking about uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, I walked through for about half the night. Um, the story of Joseph in Genesis, um, who experiences a lot of highs and lows, some really deep lows during the course of his life. Um, and you can, but you can see uh, through the course of his life how God has wielded all those things ultimately for his good. So I encourage you guys, uh, this is a guide to just walk through this, the, the life of Joseph um, with different thoughts along the way. Uh, the quotes are basically... Um, kind of a, a broader way of understanding what he was thinking or feeling in that moment, potentially, um, and how that can relate to circumstances that we're in. Um, and in the, in the box, it's the, the kind of the facts of the situation, the, the reality that he was in in that moment. Um, so use that as you would like. Uh, second, so part two of this class is called The Work of God. So Beauty of God, we're looking at mostly um, the character, the attributes, the nature of God. Uh, next semester, we'll continue going through John Frame. Um, we were talking about it. It's going to look a little bit different next semester. It'll probably be um, more, a much more discussion-based, like still some teaching, but much more, hey, let's just talk about what this means for our lives. Let's, let's all come ready and prepared and thinking through ahead of time. Um, so it'll be less me standing up here just communicating things and more let's you know, sit in someone's living room. Uh, depending on the size of the group, we might actually do it at, in my house. Um, next semester. So if you guys are interested, I'm probably going to make it a little bit longer, maybe five or six weeks, four weeks. It's hard to get through much material. Uh, we'll focus on 
Um, who is Jesus? Uh, what did Jesus accomplish? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? Um, what is the nature of our salvation? Um, spiritual gifts, church leadership, what is the church? We'll hit on a lot of different things that, uh, that also get covered in, in theology. That'll be next semester. Uh, probably, I guess it'll be March sometime. Late February, early March. Come, come next semester, we'll talk about that. Uh, depends how you define it. That's, that question is really nebulous. It's really broad. So we'll, let's talk about it afterward. Um, all right, anything else for the good of the order? Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, for buying a large book and trying to read it and think hard about things. Um, Michael, would you pray for us to close out?